Support for this podcast is provided by the Florence County Museum, presenting legend Francis Marion in the PD. The exhibit explores how 19th century art depicting Marion and his militia contributed to the Swamp Fox's legend in early American independence. Now on exhibit, flocomuseum.org. From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will chat with American food writer, culinary historian, and Stone Ground Grits entrepreneur, John Martin Taylor. John's mid-80s bookstore in Charleston, South Carolina, Hoppin' John's, helped fuel a growing interest among white Charlestonians in the traditional foodways of the coastal plains of both South Carolina and Georgia. Following 1989's devastating Hurricane Hugo, John started writing his seminal book, Hoppin' John's Low Country Cooking. With that book, John Martin Taylor expanded his mission, reintroducing many traditional Southern dishes. In our conversation today, we'll talk about his life and career, as recounted in his latest book, Charleston to Phnom Penh, A Cook's Journal. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal, and with us on the telephone from Hanoi in the Republic of Vietnam is a South Carolinian who is traveling around the world, John Martin Taylor, better known to many as Hopping John from his career as cookbook author in South Carolina. And John, let's talk about a little bit about your growing up in South Carolina, how you became a chef, and then how in the heck did you get to Vietnam? <laughs> well, Walter, to begin with, I am not a chef. And people think when you write cookbooks that you're a chef, but I don't, I've never cooked for money. I only cook for love. I am a, a culinary historian and a cookbook author. Okay. But Lord, Lord knows I would make it in a restaurant about five minutes. As soon as somebody asked me to hold the sauce, I'd probably go ballistic. Or, as, or if I had to figure out, you know, uh, food costs and all that or, or deal with employees. <laughs> okay. But, but I made my living actually as uh, as an artist for years and years and years. And um, I was living in Paris, France, and um, I applied for the job as the art director of a magazine. This was in 1983. And through a series of coincidences, I got hired as the food editor instead, and my life literally changed overnight. The magazine was a French-language magazine about New York, and they moved me to New York, and there I met Karen Hess, the great culinary historian who basically invented the field. She certainly defined it and showed what it could be. In 1984, University of South Carolina Press published her annotated edition of The Virginia Housewife, and I interviewed her on the history of Thanksgiving. And coincidentally, right before my interview with Karen, um, I had stumbled upon on the street in Newport, Rhode Island, a manuscript 
cookbook that had been assembled in the early part of the 20th century with recipes from uh, St. John's um, Berkeley County, which is less than 100 miles from where I grew up. A lot of the recipes I didn't recognize at all. A lot of the food I didn't recognize because a lot of it had disappeared in the meantime. Anyway, Karen encouraged me to go back to South Carolina and research the culinary history of Charleston and the Low Country. And I moved back to Charleston in 86 and opened Hoppin' John's, my culinary bookstore, and started researching the culinary history. And okay, okay, now you opened a bookstore only dealing with culinary matters, right? Yes, it was a bookstore, and it, it was, but not just cookbooks. There were historical treatises. There were books on hunting and fishing, but only uh, if they related to hunting and fishing for food. There were gardening books, but only food gardening books. Um, and there were the beginnings of, of culinary historical tomes, such as they were at the time. There weren't very many at the time in '86. There was, you know, Margaret Visser's work, which is really sociological more than historical. And, you know, there are a couple of other things, but not not many. Ray Tannehill's book. Um, and so I, anyway, I had the store for, gosh, 13 years. And in 92, I published Hoppin' John's Low Country Cooking, which was something of um, – it was something. I mean, it, there had never really been a cookbook like it and that delved into the history and geography and horticulture and agriculture and demographics and religion and all of those things that, that go into what a cuisine is. And yes. it's still in print. Still in print 31 years later, yeah. which is unheard of for a cookbook. That's how it made my name. Yeah. The, er, the, the earlier cookbooks had been strictly recipes, Charleston receipts. And one of the things that I, I remember from Charleston in the 1970s, there were only two restaurants. You had Henry's and you had, you had per, Henry's. and Perdita's. And Perdita's. If yeah. you wanted, Perdita's was upscale. Yeah, <laughs> Henry's was a more traditional, old-fashioned Charleston, and that was it. That was the restaurant scene. Okay, now, but in Charleston today, it's a very, very different thing. Oh, oh absolutely, it's a very, very different well, thing. It's been it's been Travel and Leisure's number one destination in the states for the past dozen years. I mean, it's you know, it's become and and I do take partial credit for putting. Charleston on the map. I mean, I was writing about it in Gourmet and New York Times and Washington Post and Food and Wine and Bon Appetit. And, and when nobody had heard the word low country, much less low country cooking. Of course, most of the restaurants weren't serving that and they still don't, although they do more so now. You know, there wasn't a single restaurant when I opened my store uh, in 86. There wasn't a single restaurant in Charleston serving shrimp and grits. Um, and actually, that name, Shrimp and Grits, was given to the dish by my my friend, Bill Neal. He died in 91 and at his restaurant in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But I don't know of a single restaurant. There were, you know, there were breakfast places that served grits, but honestly, most of the grits were 
Quaker and Jim Dandy, they were, you know, degerminated and ground between steel rollers and just, you know, didn't have any flavor. And it's no wonder Yankees didn't like them. It tastes like them. <laughs> I mean, it's, they tasted like the boxes that they were in. No kidding. <laughs> well, and it, that was before Anson Mills began turning out stone ground grits. Well, yes, and before long before Anson Mill, I mean, Glenn Roberts worked at a restaurant across the street from my shop. Uh, I was selling stone ground grits and trying to get restaurants to serve them. And Glenn will tell you that, that I'm the one who put the bug in his ear. But, you know, Walter, back then, and when I was growing up in Orangeburg, we had stone ground grits you know, they were whole grain. They were nothing added to and taken away from. And they were from Adela Mills right there in Columbia. And, we, and, you know, it was 40 miles away. But Mama bought both the grits and the cornmeal, which are the same thing. They're just one's ground more finely than the other. Mama bought them in little one-pound bags. Mm-hmm. She didn't put them in the freezer or refrigerator or worry about them going bad um, the, the way – the whole grain products will go um, because she bought such small quantities and she used them every week. And, and, and they were so, fresh. And, and sometimes the grits were yellow. As, and not sometimes yellow. the grits were yellow, indeed, indeed. Both of my parents were from Tennessee, and the grits that and cornmeal that we grew up with was always white. And this is white dent corn, you know, not the flint corn of Polenta in Italy. And it's just it's just what we use is what we had just because you know family you know the way your family does it is always the best way right so well shrimp and grits you can't go to a restaurant anywhere in the united states today i don't think particularly if it claims to be an upscale restaurant and not find shrimp and grits and they'll frequently say either charleston Sometimes they'll say low country. Sometimes they'll say Carolina or South Carolina. So the name may have come out of Chapel Hill. We could debate that and look for footnotes. But it is the Carolina low country, the South Carolina low country. Uh, In Williamsburg, Virginia, in the ends there, they serve shrimp and grits. And and Walter, I will will take... A large part of the credit for this, because when I opened the bookstore, when you when you're an independent bookseller, you've got to have something else. Some people sell teddy bears. Some people have custom made knives, whatever. There's always a sideline. And when I moved back to Charleston, I couldn't find what mama called country grits, stone ground, whole grain grits anywhere in Charleston. Could not find them. I might find a bag in a health food store, sitting unrefrigerated on a shelf. And so what I did was I either went to or contacted and tried the products from 30 mills. I joined an organization called SPOOM, uh, the Society for the Preservation of Old Mills. And they uh, pointed me in the direction of a lot of people who were growing the right kind of corn, growing it the right way, drying it in the field, adding nothing to it, making sure it was below 14% humidity before they grind, and grinding between blue granite stones. And I started writing about it for New York Times and other places. And I found a mill in Georgia. They were doing it all right. And I started selling their stuff on my label. And before I knew it, within two years, I had customers in all 50 states. And 
restaurants in most of the states. By the time I closed the store, I had restaurateurs in all states. And mind you, I would tell these guys, these chefs, why do you want to get grits from me? Why don't you find somebody in your neck of the woods growing a local corn and using it? But no, they wanted mine because it well, it was easier for them too. Yeah, this is the thing that I am most proud of, of my, my career, is getting people eating whole grains again, and particularly corn, well, and particularly this dent corn from Appalachia, because it's the it's the classic corn of Appalachia, actually. Today, people don't think anything about getting foodstuffs through the mail. Back in that day, 30-some-odd years ago, that was rather unusual. Yeah. We shipped every day. We were shipping pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds uh, of, of grits to people all over the country. I started selling the grits as soon as I opened the store. When the hurricane came in 89, I was out of my home and shop. Both were in the same building for a full year. But I was instrumental in, in uh, getting the downtown Charleston Farmer's Market opened up. And I sold my grits there as well. I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had that, <laughs> honestly. John, you, you, you mentioned Hugo. That had an impact on your business at the time. You, you changed some things after Hugo, right? Well, in Hugo, I was out of business for, for a full year. And I, I was also in a two-book contract with Bantam Books. And so I buckled down and finished up did all the fine-tuning and editing with my editor on the first book then. And then when I came back, I um, I expanded the store some. I put in a cooking school, and I had three more cookbooks I, I wrote in the meantime. So, yeah, it was – but it was still a culinary bookstore. I just had uh, kitchen equipment. I also had some foodstuffs. I had a line of condiments that were – the recipes for which were in the book, but, you know, I had – artichoke relish and she grabbed soup that we canned and things like that. But God, it seems so long ago now. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's let's talk for our listeners who are not from South Carolina, who are tuning into our podcast. How'd you got the name Hoppin' John? <laughs> oh, Lord. It seems like you literally Sir. have been hopping around the world. But of course, for folks who uh, like old-fashioned Southern cuisine, Hoppin' John has a very uh, specific recipe. What happened was after I left the French magazine and came um, to Charleston and to open the store, um, I went back to New York and apprenticed with uh, Knock Waxman, who had opened Kitchen Arts and Letters, uh, a, a culinary bookstore that is still there and world renowned. And he and I apprenticed with him for a few months to learn the trade. And that New Year's Day. I went to a friend's house. There were a bunch of Southerners, and we're doing a traditional New Year's Day thing. And I said, I'll bring the Hoppin' John. And I got – it was a freezing cold day, I remember, and walked up the stairs, and I'm like, freezing cold. And I'm like, open the door. Open the door. I've got the Hoppin' John. And I was a little late, and they opened the door, and all these other Southerners went – so you are Hoppin' John. And it's funny. And I, I just, I mean, it was from that point on, it was no uh, question what I was going to call the store. I was going to call it the Educated Palette, which was like roundly rebuffed by every person I knew. <laughs> it's like, you can't call it that. Okay. Um, but, 
before we go any further, though, I mean, I love how I love the origin story of Hoppin' John. But for listeners who are from off, let us tell them what Hoppin' John is. Yeah, Hoppin' John is a bean and rice uh, perlo, as we say, or yep. pilaf or pilo, however you want to say it. I always grew up saying perlo, that we serve on New Year's Day for good luck. And it's made with cow peas, which are dried field peas. Um, most people think that it's made with black-eyed peas, and which is an interesting um, story but, because the, the first written recipe we have for it is in the Carolina Housewife of 1847, and she calls for little red peas. And, I, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of varieties of, of cowpeas, uh, Vigna, uh, Vigna and Guiculata is the Latin name. And there are dozens of varieties of them, but the little red one, and all of them, by the way, came from West Africa. And John, why are we eating Hoppin' John on New Year's Day? We eat it on New Year's Day. Well, there's, there's many reasons, but... It's the end of the harvest season in in the low country. And that week was the one week of the year when the enslaved could celebrate and not have to work in the fields. And throughout the world where rice is grown and beans are grown, you find these dishes, and they're often celebratory, and they're often at the end of the harvest season. So it's basically a harvest festival. Okay. Um, also, rice and beans, you know, have this synergy. They they perform a complete protein that neither of them will do on their own. Okay. Um, well, it, of course, there are South Carolina legends attached to that. Besides the actual purpose, you you have to have pork. You have to have greens, preferably collards, and you have Hoppin' John. You have yeah. gr- collards for your long green. For your, for your money. For yeah, your, you know, <laughs> your, your pocket change. And yeah. I must tell you, you talked about being in New York City. When I was teaching at Middlebury College way up there in Vermont, Vermont on New Year's, trying to put together a New Year's Day, we got the pork. That was not a problem. We were able to come up with rice and I think a can of black-eyed peas, but we couldn't get collards anywhere. And so my wife and I had to substitute spinach, and we somehow felt that wasn't quite the same. <laughs> I hope your I hope your fortunes didn't fall that year. <laughs> 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 oh, my. You know, I have to tell you, I have managed I have you know, I've lived all over the world. I've lived in the Caribbean, I lived in Paris, I lived in Genoa, Italy, I lived in Bulgaria, and I've always managed to do the meal. John, your latest book is Charleston to Phnom Penh. How did you get there, and what were you doing there? <laughs> well, um, my husband, that I've been with for 30 years, Michael Harrington, in 2011 went to work for Peace Corps as a country director, and he was the country director in Bulgaria. So that's where I was the last time I talked um, with you. And then we went to China And then we came back to the States for a while, and then he took the job in Cambodia as country director there. And and it's taken 20 years for Peace Corps to get uh, Vietnam to be willing 
uh, to accept Peace Corps volunteers. And so because he had experience with a communist country, having been in China, they begged him to take um, the, the position here. So now we're here. But that's how we got to Phnom Penh. Well, so, I, I was going to say some of the best rice-producing areas are what used to be South Vietnam. From what was then, yes, and also and also north, the beautiful uh, terraced ones up near the China border. Those are the ones that you see the pictures of that are so beautiful. Yes, we've had we've got a good friend who grows an amazing rice, and I bought about twenty pounds with with me. The rices that they grow in Cambodia, there are about um, three hundred varieties in Cambodia. I haven't familiarized myself. Uh, very much with the rice here. You, you've been there a couple of weeks. You've already had your experience with Nook Mom, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> Which is? Um, it's fish sauce. A fish sauce. It, it's, it's fish sauce. It's a Nam Pla in, in Thailand, Nook Mom here. And in Cambodia, they have something that's the most reprehensibly smelling thing you've ever smelled. <laughs> and it's called Prahok. And it's, it is the fermented, rotting, salted fish, that paste, what drains from it becomes the, the fish sauce. But they actually, in Cambodia, they use a spoon of this paste. And, I mean, it is, it is so – you can't imagine how bad it smells. But I have to tell you, like a quarter of a teaspoon in a composed rice dish is just – it's magical. It's It just – Brightens it all up. It gives it umami. It's it's just wonderful. It's like adding a. I cook a lot with anchovies and anchovies. You know, people say, "Oh, I don't like fish. I don't like anchovies." I've never had anybody even know that there was anchovies in something that I've cooked with anchovies because I put some olive oil in a pan and put an anchovy in there, and it totally melts. And it, but you know, and it's it's like Worcestershire sauce for that matter. It's you know, which is yes. also made. From I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Most people don't realize that Worcestershire sauce comes from fish. It's basically yeah. it's a and, fish sauce. And this all goes back to Rome. This all goes back all the way back. Garum. This is the garum of Rome. This is these are the dried shrimp of West and East Africa. This is this is the prahok of Cambodia. It's the Nampla of Thailand. It's a, and it's the Worcestershire of England. You know, it's a fish. It's an amazing seasoning. Okay. All right. John, I, I hate to tell you this because it's always fun to talk with you wherever you have found to light. But Alfred is saying our time is running out. It's wonderful to be back in touch with Hoppin' John Taylor from South Carolina to Bulgaria to Cambodia, and now Vietnam. Thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thanks for having me, Walter. It's great to talk to you. We shouldn't let it be another 12 years. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Our friend John Martin Taylor has been hopping around the globe since we last had a conversation. He's now landed in Vietnam, and we recorded this podcast with Taylor about Southern cooking and his experiences abroad. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. 
Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at southcarolinapublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again soon.